everyone. Welcome to this ODI event. I hope you're all keeping safe and well during these uncertain times. We are expecting over 600 people from around 60 countries. Um, so we're just going to take a few seconds and wait just to make sure that everyone who wants to join can do so. Just a few seconds. We now have have a full room with us, uh, with us. So thank you everyone for joining us and for being with us. My name is Sana Safi. I am a senior journalist and presenter on BBC Pashto uh, section or service, uh, BBC Afghanistan service. This event is organized by the Overseas Development Institute, ODI, which is a global think tank that harnesses the power of research, evidence, and ideas to um, find solutions, confront challenges, and create and affect change. As you all know, the COVID-19 crisis is posing unprecedented challenges around the world. In conflict zones from the Sahel to Myanmar, armed groups have reacted to the pandemic in their own ways. In Afghanistan, the Taliban has produced propaganda showing their preparedness, their action, and their reaction against uh, the virus. Gangs in Rio and Mexico have also capitalized on the pandemic to enhance their credibility and public image. Other actors, including the UN Secretary General, have also um, or has sought to use the virus to push the cause of peace. Uh, they've uh, called on all conflict parties to halt violence and work together to combat COVID-19. We are here today to take a deep dive at some of these issues and hopefully try to untangle some. But in particular, we are trying to answer the question surrounding how have armed groups responded to the COVID-19 crisis and why? And uh, what is the implication of this for humanitarian or on humanitarian and development aid? And what is the implication of this for conflict um, resolution and peace building? So to answer these questions, these broad questions, and to help us make sense of uh, these, uh, we have a very expert panel for you. Today uh, with us here is Ashley Jackson, who is a researcher and co-director of the ODI Center for the Study of Armed Groups. Ashley has over 10 years of experience in conflict zones and in crisis. She has conducted extensive research on, on and with the Taliban, as well as the population living under their control in Afghanistan. Ashley has also conducted research um, in Iraq, as well as the Central African Republic. Our second panelist is Harun Marouf, who is an international broadcaster with Voice of America and the co-author of the book Inside Al-Shabaab. Harun has extensive experience in working in conflict zones, as well as working with armed groups. Um, he has written extensively on Somalia, and the Horn of Africa. Among other topics, he has covered the emergence of pro-Islamic state militants in Somalia, uh, as well as the journeys that some Somali youth uh, have been taking from Minnesota in the US to Syria to fight alongside ISIS. General George McIntosh is with us today. Uh, George is the senior military advisor to the UN Special Envoy in Yemen. George has uh, extensive experience in the military and a great deal of regional understanding and has been responsible to oversee the nationwide ceasefire in Yemen. Finally, we have Marie Lequin. Marie is the head of the Euroasia region at Geneva Call and she has in-depth experience working in conflict transformation, security sector reform 
and conflict-sensitive humanitarian responses. Uh, Marie has comprehensive in-country understanding, having, lived, having led responses not just in the Eurasia region, but also in the DRC and across Africa. So thank you to all of our panelists. I would also like to let you know that we will be taking questions. If you have questions, please use the chat box to send them uh, to us, and I will try and put them to the panelists. I would now like to welcome Ashley Jackson to kick off the webinar. Ashley, the ODI has organized organized this event and you've started the center, the Center for the Study of Armed Groups. Why is this issue important now and why or what has the pandemic highlighted about the importance of understanding armed groups? Well, the issue with armed groups for us is that their aims, their motives, and their modus operandi are often poorly understood. And then that leads to policies which are either ineffective or at worst, do more harm than good. And that's true whether you're trying to deliver aid in conflict or negotiate peace or deal with a global pandemic as we are right now. And this is not a new problem, but it's an incredibly stubborn one. And the ODI at 60 event series of which this, this talk is a part, aims to radically rethink the way we traditionally approach sticky challenges like this. Internal armed conflicts have comprised the majority of conflicts, at least since the end of the Cold War. But statistically speaking, the average number of armed groups in any given conflict is multiplying, steadily increasing. We've definitely seen this on the ground in conflicts like Libya, Syria, Eastern Congo, and elsewhere, where you've seen the number of armed groups growing and, and getting more complex and harder to, to figure out, essentially, and engage with. Additionally, I would argue the nature, aims, and behavior of armed groups is changing writ large. The modern nature of political contestation and insecurity is just increasingly complex. When we talk about armed groups, we're including an array of incredibly diverse actors. We're talking about criminal gangs who essentially control territory in, in large parts of South and Central America, and some of them are responsible for higher death tolls than we see in places like Yemen and Afghanistan. We're also talking about groups that are pursuing ideological struggles, but may not really control territory, such as Al-Qaeda. Uh, we're also talking about armed groups who act more and more like governing authorities. We've seen this a bit with uh, the Taliban, Al-Shabaab, the Islamic State. They enact these shadow administrations uh, that govern huge swathes of territory, at least for a time. And then there are militias who are often essentially on the side of, of governments, pro-government militias in name, but who enact violence and perpetuate conflict in their own way, either quasi or wholly independent of those states they claim to be allied with. And I could go on. But the point is that when it comes to health and the sort of economic ramifications of COVID, these groups matter. Massive populations live under the control or influence of these groups. And if you refuse to engage with them, or if you do so ineffectively, it's those people who will suffer. Any strategy that discounts armed groups and combating COVID is bound to fail. Um, if you want to deliver aid or enforce any sort of unified public health strategy across areas of divided control, you have to understand what these groups want and how they work. You know, we've seen many groups try and enforce curfews or movement restrictions uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic. We've also seen them use the pandemic to, to further their self-image, to further their objectives, to demonize their adversaries or spread misinformation and conspiracy theories, which of course is incredibly counterproductive and dangerous. So the most immediate and practical question is what do you do? How do you engage with these groups effectively? And how do you deal with the inevitable dilemmas and challenges that arise from that engagement? How do you talk about engaging with these armed groups given all the taboos around that kind of engagement? We still live in a very much uh, state-centric international system. So all of this, of course, I hope we'll have a chance to explore today, but I'll leave it there for now. And uh, that, that's really useful, thank you. Um, in terms of legitimacy and, and how uh, their actions or the actions of armed groups have an impact on their legitimacy, we have a question from 
uh, Mirko Raul, a PhD a candidate working on popular religions in social conflicts. Um, and he asks, saying, how much do we know about the impact of COVID on the legitimacy of armed groups that provide government services among local populations versus rival authorities or, or international actors? Um, you mentioned the Taliban and other groups. Ashley? Well, Sana, I was sorry, <laughs> you just broke up there for a minute, but I think I got the, the gist of what you were asking. I would say, you know, early on in the pandemic, we saw a lot of groups, the Taliban included, but others certainly using this as an opportunity to try and enhance their image and legitimacy as uh, the person asking the question suggests. The problem there, though, is very few armed groups actually have health systems, actually have access to ventilators, actually can do anything other than exert coercive force, keeping people at home, for example, instituting movement restrictions. You know, they don't have an army of, of healthcare workers. They've been focused on fighting a war. Uh, one exception might be Hezbollah, who, who is able to sort of provide uh, that kind of service, Hamas as well, but those are quasi-state entities, I would argue. I mean, they're participating in government, right? Uh, but the Taliban certainly doesn't run hospitals. It tries to co-opt what, what the government provides. The same is true of many, many other armed groups. So ultimately, I think, you know, the worries about them using the pandemic to enhance their legitimacy are a little bit more nuanced than, than they've been portrayed. On the one hand, they can embarrass uh, the national governments that they're at war with by saying, look, look at how they're you know, not doing everything that they should be doing. But look, you know, some of the most advanced countries in the world with the best healthcare systems have, have struggled in this pandemic. Uh, but what these armed groups can't do and what really matters to people is to provide healthcare and to provide the kind of health guidance and public health planning that really only governments can provide. Thank you. And Harun, you've worked extensively in Somalia in the conflict zone and you've interacted with armed groups. What is the situation like in Somalia right now, particularly in regards to Al-Shabaab and how they have reacted to the COVID-19 crisis? Um, thank you very much, Sana, and uh, also thanks to everybody else. I also want to thank uh, the ODI, the Institute, for inviting us. Just want to correct you, I have covered the conflict in Somalia. I've also covered the armed groups in Somalia and the Somali government, which we had in the last uh, 25 years. Uh, but I have not directly interacted with the, uh, with, the, with the armed groups themselves, but I have covered them uh, comprehensively. Coming back to your question, Somalia, you know, there has been a lot of developments in Somalia. There were positive developments uh, recently. Somalia is going to get significant debt relief uh, due to um, reform of financial services and financial institutions and increase in revenue. That is the positive news. The other usual news we hear from Somalia is that Somalia is facing a lot of challenges. The capacity of the government to respond to crisis is very weak because of the uh, civil strife that has engulfed the country uh, for a long time. Uh, Somalia is facing security challenges, mainly coming from the threat of Al-Shabaab. Somalia is also facing threat from locust invasion and most recently, Somalia is suffering from COVID-19. Early on, Somalia has uh, taken on COVID-19. The capacity of the government, as I told you, the health system is very weak. The government so far has tested about 6,500 people. 40% of that have tested positive. That's very, very small number compared to the other countries in the region. Uh, but the, the government understood it is capacity, so it's targeting this small pool of cases. It's giving them care. On the other hand, the government is not releasing data. It's not telling us how it's managing. Um, it's not giving us the model that it's using in countering COVID-19. Um, probably, maybe it does not want it, the public to panic. There is no random test among the public. The government is relying on referral from doctors and hospitals, so it's it's targeting this small group of 
cases. Uh, Al-Shabaab, on the other hand, have been giving conflicting responses uh, on response to COVID-19. I will take three statements that Al-Shabaab have made in the past few months. In early April uh, this year, uh, one of the leaders of Al-Shabaab, uh, Sean Cole, has been reacting to the COVID-19 and he was giving the usual rhetoric that this is a divine uh, punishment, fury from God, punishing, as he put it, the five most arrogant countries in the West, United States, uh, Spain, France, um, Italy, uh, UK. Um, and he was taking this issue very personally because the United States has put $5 million on, on his head. And he was saying, he was suggesting that this is the uh, revenge by, uh, in his own mindset, that uh, by Allah against the United States. But Al-Shabaab uses not only COVID-19, but also earthquakes, um, hurricanes in the United States, as uh, they see this disaster is as a punishment on her humanity uh, for not following Sharia, for not applying Sharia. Um, so they put COVID-19 in that category. That was one version, one phase of Al-Shabaab. But since then, Al-Shabaab has evolved. Uh, we have seen a major statement on May 19 by the Al-Shabaab Office of the Politics and the Regions that's equivalent to the Interior Ministry uh, of Al-Shabaab. Um, and they have appointed, they have realized it, the fact that this disease is very serious, very dangerous. It can't cross from uh, one area to another. People can take it from one area to another, and they realize that. So they have appointed this committee, uh, call it the Committee to Monitor COVID-19. They included doctors, uh, scholars, intellectuals, and other uh, activists. So they, these committees have been speaking to the uh, public realizing the dangers of the disease and uh, they have also realized that people move from their area to the government control area and from the government control area to Al-Shabaab. The difference between government area and Al-Shabaab area is that government controls large populated cities, Al-Shabaab con controls small populated rural areas. So the people and the towns are dispersed. Nonetheless, there are a significant number of people still living under the control of control of Al-Shabaab. And then I will come to the uh, statement made by one of the top five leadership of Al-Shabaab uh, on June 5th. Uh, his name is uh, Sheikh Mohammed Al-Sheikh. He used to run uh, Zakat and humanitarian affairs for Al-Shabaab. And he was sounding as if that the group now completely accepts. Although uh, when they're speaking to their audience, their um, constituents, they give this rhetoric that it's a divine punishment from Allah, but also they were realistic. Uh, probably the fact that some of them, probably the uh, COVID-19 reached their area. We are getting very reliable sources that uh, members of the public who traveled from Al-Shabaab area, rigid government control area, they were tested and they tested positive. So it's very likely that COVID-19 reached in Al-Shabaab control areas. So this leader, Sheikh Mohammed uh, Al-Sultan, was giving uh, tips to the public about how to treat uh, COVID-19 and the tips he was giving is very much similar to the traditional medicines he was saying uh, you use clove is a uh, rumery uh, uh, um, uh, plants um, ginger so he was giving all this kind of traditional medications for people to treat but the most significant uh, development within the last week on June 11 is that Al-Shabaab announced setting up the first hospital to treat COVID-19 victims in the town of Chile. They did not say uh, firmly that there were positive cases, but they implied that there are significant cases, th that there might be cases, and they have set up a hotline for people to call. They have also very interestingly, uh, announced that uh, the hospital, which they set up in a building owned by the Somali Red Crescent in the past, in the town of Chile, that uh, they have ventilators, they have doctors, they have equipment. That's what they said. We will talk about how they man may have managed to obtain this equipment. But that's the response that Al-Shabaab have been giving uh, to COVID-19 on one hand, describing this disease as a punishment from God, on the other hand, realizing the dangers. 
But that is the life of Al-Shabaab. They have always lived on this adaptability, conflicting uh, policies, uh, manipulative, uh, playing to different kind of audiences. That's not very usual to Al-Shabaab. That is a very interesting point that you raise, the limitations of these groups, particularly of Al-Shabaab, and also the distortion of the message to the local population. So they're not giving one message, but several and mix them, um, potentially helping misinformation in some ways. Uh, one question from Florian for you, Haroon, is that what could the international community do to help with the COVID response in Al-Shabaab-controlled areas? Uh, this is a very interesting question. You have to take into account how Al-Shabaab dealt with aid agencies and support from the international community in the past. Uh, we can talk about the Al-Shabaab response to the famine in 2011. We can talk about how Al-Shabaab responded to a major outbreak of diarrhea in late 2015. Um, as you know, in 2009, 2010, 2011, Al-Shabaab completely banned aid agencies from um, its area. That banning of aid agencies uh, no more, they have not given, um, well, they have given a reason, which was that these agencies are spreading uh, Christianity. But the reason was that they were, they, they were, they were, they were pretty scared. They have taken the decision for security reasons. But uh, I think this banning of aid agencies still perplexes Al-Shabaab because banning aid agencies has not given Al-Shabaab any security. There's increase of uh, drone attacks in, in uh, or, or targeting high-profile Al-Shabaab leadership. They have banned uh, smartphones. They have banned um, cable network, cable internet. Uh, but still, the attacks against the leadership has not stopped. So I think they regret in banning completely aid agencies. Uh, nonetheless, the, re the, the way they reacted to support from international community was that without accepting, without officially saying that they're going to invite international organizations into their area. They have been trying to deal with local um, uh, NGOs indirectly. For instance, if I give you when in 2011, uh, tens of thousands of people started leaving Al-Shabaab area. Al-Shabaab doesn't like the public to leave their area. They wanted to control, keep them in their area so that they can uh, recruit and also find a significant number of people to control. In order to stop this flow of people into government control areas, what they did is they set up a IDB camp in Lower Shabele and then they contacted uh, behind the scenes with local NGOs and they said, you can contact your partners. That's literally how they put it. You can contact your partners and ask them to come in. And in one case, one of the Ashraf leaders said, to the aid agency, you can contact your infidelis and ask them they can bring in uh, some aid. So this is was the Al-Shabaab version um, in responding when they realized that this famine and this disease is really affecting their leadership, not only the ordinary public, but it's also going to affect their leadership. It's going to taint, uh, further taint their image, and it's also going to uh, weaken their control over the public. They're going to react. This is exactly how they reacted to diarrhea in late 2015 in the town of uh, Sako, Chilip, and Buale. Uh, this diarrhea was killing about, uh, it killed about nearly 100 people. And they thought it might be a cholera. So they contacted one of the NGOs. They banned it from their area. And they said, you can bring in medication. So they sent supplies, uh, um, to, to their area. But Al-Shabaab has a health system. Uh, it's a two-track health system. One is very, uh, has some quality that is for their fighters. And the other um, uh, health system is that they control and have taken over the hospitals only by the government before, by the Somali government in the past. And there are doctors there. So Al-Shabaab is... Hold up, thought her. Rune. We will come to how they've responded in the past, but let me go to Yemen first and um, to uh, General George McIntosh. Um, General, the UN Secretary um, General issued an appeal for an immediate global ceasefire um, in the world or in all corners, corners of the world. 
rooted in the re recognition that there should be only one fight and we must all unite against COVID-19. What does the situation look like in Yemen at the moment? Uh, good question. There is, um, so I'll answer it first to give me a, a little bit of context uh, uh, as, as the situation is now, and then maybe a few factors uh, from a military and political standpoint. Um, at the end of last year, uh, demonstrable de-escalation had provided hope. Uh, however, the special envoy, Martin Griffiths, identified the dangers of a stall and then a return to violence. In January, this sad vision uh, was signaled by uh, large gains made by Ansar Allah in Nehem and Al-Jawf. And these uh, offensive actions culminated in the taking of Al-Hazm at the end of February. This return to hostilities had to be arrested. Uh, so the special envoy called uh, for crisis talks between the parties and coupled this with uh, a proposed joint declaration, including a nationwide ceasefire, uh, some economic and humanitarian measures and the resumption of uh, politi the political process. And this is key. The, the secretary general's call was then timely uh, because it dovetailed neatly into the situation as described. Um, I'll keep my uh, my answer focused on um, military and, and political uh, and, and, and specifically with regards to armed groups and COVID. Uh, although significant progress has been made through this dialogue that I've described, the war goes on, talking while fighting. Until an agreement is reached, military commanders will attempt to secure identified strategic targets for economic, political and military reasons. These areas or targets are often viewed as critical to both sides. In military terms, they are centers of gravity. Even as the political elements negotiate peace, hostilities continue. True to form, if you invite an army officer onto your panel, he can't avoid introducing military maxims. Uh, and hopefully I'll use these to show how they jar with the effective approach to countering COVID-19. Selection and maintenance of the aim. With strategic goals remaining, the actors will stay focused on, accomplish, uh, on accomplishing these and will not allow external factors to affect their desired outcome. Offensive action. To win, you must maintain momentum and seize the initiative. Medical and health professional advice is likely to be ignored. Concentration of force. To flatten the COVID curve, it is important to avoid large and concentrated gatherings. This, of course, runs counter to military thinking, focusing your forces on a specific point to maximize effect. And finally, flexibility, a principle that is vital in a multi-front conflict is the ability to change readily and move quickly as circumstance dictates. This rapid geographic redeployment of forces may dangerously encourage the spread of COVID-19. And then maybe just a, a, a little on, on the political uh, context. The conflict in Yemen has raged for five years and the root causes are decades old. The protagonists have learnt to view every event as an opportunity. As an aside, I think the first edition of The Art of the Deal had to have been written by a Yemeni. All sides have a bucket list of requirements and they will negotiate hard to achieve them. COVID-19 demands the notice of national leaders, government employees and international actors. This necessary attention is capitalized on over time for less altruistic purposes. COVID-19 becomes a forcing function for increased financial support, easing of restrictions, and many other perceived ills that have beset the parties. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you for that. A question from David from Save the Children. How much, in your view, has the Secretary General's call for a global ceasefire helped to reduce violence 
and have parties focus on fighting the pandemic? And how do you think, or do you think the inability of the UN Council to agree on a resolution to somewhat um, resolution has somewhat undermined the regional uh, the original momentum. Um, thank you for the question, and I think um, it's really important and uh, and quite difficult to answer. But I think um, the effects of the Secretary General's call cannot be overstated. Um, it galvanized people uh, into focusing on a peace process. And it did uh, at the time and now uh, provided a new impetus. Um, the special envoy uh, received since this call outstanding engagement and support from the coalition, from the parties, from civil society in Yemen. Uh, and it was the secretary general's call uh, that acted as a catalyst for many others, many voices around the world to plead for peace in the Yemen and provided the foundations for the Secretary General's launch of the initiative that I mentioned, the, the joint declaration. From my position and from all that I've heard, uh, the, the, the Security Council are united in the pursuit of peace. And again, what I've seen is they have, they have been nothing but supportive of the Special Envoy's efforts. Both collectively and individually, member states of the Council have ensured wider support is realised at critical moments of, of the ongoing negotiations. As I explained earlier, the, the, the war has long and well-established roots. Fighting will only stop when a road to peace is identified. The fact that the protagonists are actively engaging, partly due to the Secretary General's call, and seeking solutions for, uh, provide real um, cause for hope. Uh, and it is, it is this belief that will bring about the ceasefire, which we hope will come very soon. Thanks. Thank you, George. And Marie, as an organization, you work with armed groups to convince them to act more humanely towards their citizens. Are there any clear patterns that could be drawn out um, on how armed non-state actors have responded to the COVID-19 crisis in general? Um, as part of our humanitarian engagement with the armed non-state actors, we have tried to put together a database which lists the different measures the different armed groups have uh, taken to to control the spread of uh, COVID. Um, and we have listed all together about 270 measures by 61 armed groups from uh, 25 um, different countries. So we looked at um, armed violence globally. Um, and yes, there are some patterns and we can see that some of the measures which have been taken are where and are still now quite health-oriented. Some are more protection-oriented and others are more uh, faith-based uh, or social or economically motivated or politically. So basically some armed groups were also um, having some reputational uh, motivation. Um, so we have gathered all these uh, measures and it's interesting to see that um, some armed groups, like the Kachin Independent Organization, for instance, uh, has shared some public uh, health-related information. They've imposed some travel restriction. Uh, they have also opened some temperature check, um, screening checkpoints. So it's all array of uh, measure, but which highlights how much of um, international humanitarian law as well as international human rights law knowledge they have, how much awareness they have. But again, we are not fully in a position to monitor how much uh, has been done and if it was done uh, with the due processes. Um, there are some other measures which we would see more as uh, politically motivated, like with, for instance, the uh, TTP, which has more uh, in Pakistan, more of a face-based uh, 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 comments on the origin 
of the virus and how it should be uh, treated or prevented. So it goes back a bit to what Arun was saying before. And this, you know, highlights maybe the needs, you know, to have more uh, global information, uh, public uh, campaign to ensure that the people who have no access to uh, accurate information, you know, can, you know, can better know how to protect themselves from the, the virus. Um, there are some other groups which uh, have taken more economically motivated decisions, such as the uh, de facto in Ukraine, where uh, business and private individuals were exempted from paying some taxes. But they also ta have taken some measures which were more related to health. And again, what are the due processes uh, in regards with the, these measures when, for instance, OSCE, uh, uh, can be restricted, you know, from movement. So we, we need to look at all these different measures and see how much uh, and, uh, and if they are IHL and uh, human rights um, compliant. But what is interesting more globally is that most of the groups are aware of some of their obligation when it comes to uh, the administration of uh, health response. So they have some, you know, good knowledge uh, and positive practice when it comes to enforcing uh, some of these measures. But again, how, you know, all together we could ensure that in the end it's the beneficiaries who are in need, you know, who are better protected from uh, the, the disease, uh, the, the virus, sorry, and uh, also how could we ensure that, you know, at this particular time, everyone can freely access medical care uh, and the promotion, again, of the protection of medical care is, uh, is more than needed uh, now. Great, thank you. A question from Mohammed, who joins us from Somalia. Um, he asks, uh, groups like IS tell its followers that COVID is a divine punishment, just like Al-Shabaab does in Somalia. Do they really believe this or is just a cynical propaganda? And to what degree do we think they actually realize how serious the threat is? Um, I think it's a good question. And I think we should try to, to respond to the question more globally because here we refer to ISIS but Arun was talking about Al-Shabaab and we have you know these uh, 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 comments which come up you know uh, from diverse groups be uh, you know uh, inspired from Islam or be from the far right or the far left and there were a lot of disinformation by many many groups and I think it's good to analyze, you know, what is the objective behind, you know, is it really to, 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 to prevent, you know, the, the spread uh, of the virus or is it more, you know, to get increased support, especially maybe from people who are disconnected, you know, from the, the real situation and the, 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 the real needs. So I think we need to look at the question more broadly. Uh, I, I can't say whether they are fully convinced by what they say, uh, but again, it highlights the needs, you know, for a broad uh, mass uh, uh, information campaign on how to prevent and how to control the spread of uh, COVID, especially in situation of armed conflict where people have even less access to accurate information and where they are more vulnerable because they are, there is less access to medical facilities. So we know that armed groups have shown engagement and the engagement has its own motivation. Their motivation varies from one group to another. And also uh, conflict parties have responded to the UN's uh, Secretary General's call for um, global ceasefire. Uh, a question for you, Ashley, Dirk Drut, I hope I've pronounced the name correctly, um, an affiliate researcher at the McGill University Center for International Peace and Conflict Studies um, asks, I would be interested to hear the speaker's views on how armed groups' roles in the COVID-19 crisis impact peace processes 
And have we seen armed groups making expanded power sharing claims or otherwise using the crisis to increase their leverage? what I should say to all credit Derek for asking an incredibly difficult question. Maybe I'll start it off and then other panelists, I'm sure, will have things to say from, from their context. Of course, I mean, when General McIntosh said any event is an opportunity, that transcends Yemen. I think with insurgencies and armed groups, any event is an opportunity to increase their leverage. I'll talk briefly about the Taliban in Afghanistan. They've, they've certainly used it as an opportunity to increase their leverage by trying to embarrass uh, the Afghan government, the Afghan government has struggled to get the pandemic control, uh, by using it as a partnership in ongoing negotiations. Afghanistan uh, has been struck and protracted uh, the talk, you know, even after a deal was signed with the US in February. It's taken us a very, very long time to get to intra Afghan negotiations, and indeed, they're still pre-negotiations on the terms of that over prisoner release and all these kinds of things going on. Uh, that deserves its own its own online discussion, of course, but just to say COVID has sort of played into that. There have been many calls for the Taliban to uh, institute or agree to a humanitarian ceasefire, but the Afghan government and the US have long called on the Taliban to have a ceasefire as part of the peace process. Immediately, those calls for a humanitarian ceasefire became politicized because of this pre-existing terrain. And the more that they were pressured to institute a humanitarian ceasefire, the more they dug their, their heels in. Um, and they used it even in uh, talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government. There were these warnings issued uh, by the Taliban saying, you know, if our prisoners die in custody, in Afghan government custody, because of COVID, there will be uh, harsh consequences, you know, for sort of foreboding uh, statement. Of course, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, but again, I would, I would toss it to, to other members of the panel or, or back to Sana, because I think the examples from Central African Republic, from Democratic Republic of Congo, from a number of contexts we're not even talking about yet here, you know, you'd find that same sort of um, ethos of any event is an opportunity and uh, the pandemic certainly so. Thank you. George, would you like to come in on the power sharing point? Um, how has this impacted or the groups making expanded um, power sharing claims as a result of the virus? Um, sadly, no, I don't want to answer that, but I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to come into something that Ashley said, which is, which is important, I think, is, is the difference between the two types of ceasefire. There is the ceasefire that is longed for in the Yemen and, and Afghanistan and other places that leads to a permanent peace. And then there is the, the, the ceasefire that is that is hung off a, a an event, be it a humanitarian uh, a disaster or, or, or a medical crisis, in this case, COVID. And the, the, the clever bit, uh, the, the problem is that the latter, as in the, the, the ceasefire that is attached to something, is time bounded. It's a, it's a limited process where the other leads on into something. And the clever bit is to try and make one become the other. Uh, and that's what um, uh, I think our focus is on. Over. Right. Thank you. Um, I want to go back to Haroon for the point that he was making earlier um, about Al-Shabaab and how they have responded in the past, Haroon. Tell us, are there any similarities that would help us understand their current approach? Yeah, I wanted to first of all comment on the issue of whether um, Al-Shabaab does not, Al-Shabaab and other extremist groups with the very rigid ideology, they don't believe in negotiations and ceasefire, although Taliban has committed to a ceasefire before during it, uh, and as a result of uh, recent negotiations, nonetheless, they have resumed violence because at the end of the day, this group is this ideology, their ideology teaches that they can achieve their goals through violence. Uh, Al-Shabaab has only committed to negotiations just once in 2009, and that was dictating. They were demanding two things. Number one, 
the application of Sharia and the withdrawal of international forces from Somalia. Ever, after, ever since after that, we have not seen any commitment or willingness by Al-Shabaab to reach a ceasefire. But they have what they call a gentleman's agreement with clans, with uh, certain individualists, which is they stop assassinating and planting IEDs in return for extortion, for getting money, for um, uh, donating boys, as they said, they blackmail clan elders, they uh, blackmail, blackmail businessmen, they buy these businessmen in order to be safe. They sometimes, many of them, pay extortion to Al-Shabaab, but that, that's a completely different story. Going back to the story I was telling earlier, I wanted to answer, first of all, very directly the question about what the international community do in order to help people who are affected by COVID-19 in Al-Shabaab areas. Uh, one experience from the past is to set up um, uh, IDB camps in major cities or close to major cities where these people will very likely come uh, if the COVID-19 spreads massively among the community in the rural areas. They will come to the major cities in Baidawa, in Mogadishu, in other areas. So the best thing would be to open health centers in these areas, test, isolate uh, one of the most vulnerable societies in Somalia to this disease are the IDBs, internally displaced persons. Somalia is one of the countries where IDB is, is, is very massive and large number uh, in Mogadishu and other areas. But also I mentioned it that when situation comes to very, very severe and it affects their leadership, uh, Al-Shabaab responds and starts dealing and softness and deals with local agencies. So it's very likely they are dealing with local NGOs at the moment uh, because the, the last week they mentioned it, that they have ventilators, PPEs, uh, in that health center they opened in Chile. So how did they get it? Very likely they engaged some of the local NGOs. So the moral uh, responsibility in um, will be for the, and this is a burden on, on aid agencies, is how do you make sure this aid reaches people who actually need it? Because Al-Shabaab's history is that um, when you send the food aid in the past is speaking, when you send the food aid and other equipments, uh, medications, they also use and divert some of that aid for military purposes. They give some of that medication to their fighters. They give or they monetize some of that aid. So how do you really make sure this aid that you're sending to Al-Shabaab area is not monetized and use it for military purposes and making for pumps? So that's a moral question on people who are trying to help Somalia. But the safest one maybe is to set up health centers around major cities so that these people can come. And when Al-Shabaab sees people fleeing, looking for treatment, they respond and they feel that as a pressure. They don't want to lose people leaving their area. Um, so that, that, that's, uh, that's speaking from, from, from the past. That's how Al-Shabaab in the past responded. Yeah, and the point about uh, when it comes to their own leadership, then they change tactic. Um, from what I've been reading and, and seeing and hearing from experts in regards to the Taliban, it's probably not limited to Al-Shabaab alone. The Taliban are accused to be doing the same thing. They're said to be doing similar, um, similarly. Whenever something affects their leadership or their core groups, then they start to change uh, tactics. Uh, Marie, why is it important um, to involve armed non-state actors in conflict or crisis preparedness, uh, response and management? Get that you know in situations of uh, armed conflict, uh, the civilian population has not you know chosen to be in that situation. And um, in the end, you know, their needs remain the same and they may be, you know, their health-related needs uh, in the case of a pandemic may be even higher than in other contexts because there is even less humanitarian aid or less access, you know, to medical-related information or medical facilities. So I think, first of all, we need to keep in mind that the civilian population are, are these who are in need 
And I think it, we need to go a bit beyond, you know, who should be the actor who was, you know, more, uh, uh, who could have, you know, more, 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 more impact. So I'm non-state actors very often, uh, some ignore, uh, some don't know that they have obligations to facilitate uh, access to medical care or, or to facilitate the provision of uh, medical aid. So they have all these uh, positive obligations. So in non-governmental controlled areas, if the government has no longer access, if, you know, if aid organizations have no access, who is going to support the population in, um, in responding to, 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 to the crisis? So I think it's very important that we keep focus on what are the needs of the population and that all actors who can access and you know uh, work on you know the well-being of the population can do so and can do it uh, freely. So yes, there are some areas where uh, de facto or armed groups you know have control, uh, but if we need some immediate response, of course we need to involve you know these uh, uh, different actors. And I think uh, it's not giving any legitimacy to to the controlling uh, force, but it's you know keeping in mind that you know the and, and being humanitarian organization driven by humanitarian principle where the needs of the civilian population should be driving uh, our action. Thank you. And George, I want to come back to the windows of opportunity point uh, that we were. Uh, touching on earlier, what kind of opportunities do you think have been created by the pandemic for future collaboration and um, working together in some ways? Or peacemaking, peace building? I think, I, I think um, as I said, I think it provides um, uh, a moment uh, uh, and uh, uh, it provides a catalyst. Um, but uh, you need to link it to the, the, the permanent um, uh, requirement for peace. I think also, uh, although uh, um, we have become uh, to see COVID in a very clear and uh, um, understandable problem, that's not how it progressed from February to now in Yemen. Um, it might be very. It might be worth very quickly in, in one minute describing or, or how I would see COVID was approached in the Yemen. Four stages. First of all, hope. Um, uh, the focus was on their own objectives, and the protagonists wanted to uh, ignore and uh, sorry wanted to uh, hope that uh, the 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 news of COVID was exaggerated. So there was very little interest, and there was very little preparation done. The second was to ignore. Um, once the effects were witnessed around the world, it was felt specifically from the leaders in power that uh, uh, drawing attention to the pandemic would create panic. Um, locking down sections of society would make food and humanitarian deliveries difficult. And uh, social distancing during Ramadan would affect the moral component. Then you went on to blame, which others have touched on, which uh, uh, of course they could see it coming and the wave was coming and they couldn't avoid it uh, and they couldn't ignore it. So the easy option was to deflect. And wild conspiracy theories uh, existed and still exist today on the, the causes uh, of the pandemic. And then finally, where we're at now is when everything else has been exhausted, you have to deal with it. And that is difficult with a collapsed medical sector and uh, very poor governance. Uh, um, to date, uh, Yemen has 709 official uh, COVID cases, which is way below what the predictions really should be. And it has a mortality rate of 22%, which is far in excess of where a prediction should be. Um, that's it. Uh, great, thank you. A question from um, Ashley, uh, and we have it from Seb. Pretzer, um, he is asking, is the, in the absence or unwillingness of states to engage with armed groups, we see other actors assuming more active roles in informal diplomacy. How do we translate that understanding into better policies 
and practices to avoid what you just warned of? Um, well, I think that's a great question and a very difficult one, and one that, that General McIntosh also alluded to. Uh, I think there are many, many lessons to be learned. One thing I would say is that they tend to be siloed in context. I'm very struck, as Haroon's talking about Somalia and General McIntosh about uh, Yemen, that there are many similarities to Afghanistan and other contexts I've worked in, but we don't always transfer those lessons. Secondly, of course, you know, there, there are rational reasons why it's hard to talk to armed groups. The states who are at war with these groups don't, don't want to, you know, they want to win the war. They generally don't want to make a peace uh, and they don't want outside actors necessarily meddling either for humanitarian reasons or political and, and peace building reasons. Um, so there are real obstacles to get around and, and political negotiations, even before you get to the negotiations with the armed groups. Uh, unquestionably, after 9-11 and the war on terror, that's gotten uh, more difficult. You have counter-terror restrictions, which uh, you know are perceived to criminalize engagement with armed groups, even for humanitarian reasons. Um, and there's a, a chilling effect on people's willingness to talk about what they're actually talking with armed groups about. Um, and that's why I highlighted in the beginning, you know, we need to really find ways of sharing these experiences, figuring out how to talk about it, how to transfer lessons across context, how to muster the collective current and historical experience, because none of these dilemmas are really new. I started my career in Aceh, uh, in Indonesia, after the Indian Ocean tsunami as an aid worker. And of course, that is one great example where uh, something of a humanitarian ceasefire after decades of conflict translated into an actual peace agreement. Right. Um, great, yeah. thank you. And uh, General McIntosh, you've got 30 seconds. You wanted to come in. I just wanted to state that the absolute obvious is that um, uh, negotiations demand relationships and demand building uh, a trust between people. And what COVID does, as is, is uh, obvious today, is it makes everything virtual. So building relationships are affected by that and make things uh, a, a lot more difficult there. Fantastic. And on that note, Thank you to all of our panelists and to each and every one of you at home or wherever you're watching from um, for joining us and for being with us today. And uh, we hope this event has helped increase your understanding of uh, armed groups' behaviors and some of the factors that shape it um, in response to the pandemic. If you want to keep up to date on the topic, the ODI Center for the Study of Armed Conflict, um, armed groups rather, uh, will be producing research on this um, throughout uh, the next uh, few weeks and months, I'm sure. So you can check out their website and um, get the latest. Uh, thank you for joining us once again and um, have a good time and good evening.